Hello everyone, welcome to the Agios Dose. My name is Bill Dykstra. Today is April the 3rd. Yes, April the 3rd, Friday, April the 3rd. And we are commemorating today St. Methodius, the Apostle to the Slavs. I thought it was only fair that we talk about St. Methodius today, which is, in fact, a bonus episode for this season. I thought it was fair that we talk about him because I had already done an episode on his brother, St. Cyril, back in February. And when I was actually researching him, I wasn't too sure when exactly St. Methodius' feast day lands on. Some sources cited sometime in May. Some cited the same day, and I believe in the Latin church, they celebrate them on both on February 14th. In our church, we celebrate them both on May something. Uh, and also we celebrate them individually because we celebrate a saint on the day that they've died. Kind of like their birthday in the heaven. And so I looked on one of my resources. I typically go to Royal Doors to kind of check who our main people are every day. And we've moved St. Methodius this year because his typical feast day is April the 6th. But that's during Holy Week. And him being a very... I assume, being a very important saint for us, we've moved it a week ahead of time. So, today's the third. Today we're celebrating him, and we're going to be talking about his life. But before we begin, I just wanted to say I hope you're all doing well. If you're in quarantine, I hope you're not going bananas quite yet. I hope you're finding this time to be kind of... I've I've been finding a lot of quiet kind of solitude, being able to work on things, being able to... um, to not have it not be so noisy. I actually believe, despite being kind of separated from the liturgy and everything that's going to be going on at church, that Holy Week will be quite good for us, that it'll be quite uh, quiet and hopefully unperturbed, a time of reflection. I believe that we won't, we won't be sharing anything on our social media And so it'll be a time to kind of unplug, not worry about notifications or getting any episodes out. We're not going to be doing an episode for, uh, for Pascha. So we'll, we'll eventually let you know what we'll be doing later on, uh, through social media, but that'll be after Pascha. That'll be after all the celebrations and stuff like that. I still hope that you're going to have a great feast and delicious food and some very nice prayer and appreciation for the salvific work of our Lord. So let's begin talking about St. Methodius. The majority of today's story comes from the Vita Methodius, a Slavic manuscript that summarizes the life of St. Methodius. It is a sort of complement to the Vita Constantini, which is the life of St. Cyril. He was known Constantine in life. In Constantine's life story, we were given more details concerning the early years of St. Cyril, a lot of which is information that extends to both of the brothers. The life of Methodius runs consequentially from the life of his brother, most of the narrative happening after the death of St. Cyril. Therefore, this episode will also be kind of like a sequel to our previous episode. However, there are details that make the life of St. Methodius completely its own. Unlike his brother's story, the Vita Methodius begins with the retelling of salvation history, the creation of man, the story of Moses, Judges, 
the ascendance of King David and the coming of Christ. The narrative then extends to include the evangelical works of the apostolic band, the ascendance of Emperor Constantine, and the councils of the church. Now, why such an introduction? It immediately made me think of the film director Terence Malick and his movie The Tree of Life. In the film, after a mother and a father are given news of their son's death in the Vietnam War, there is a cut to a 20-minute creation scene, where we see the formation of the Earth and the rise of the dinosaurs. The director made this bold move, this broadening of the film's scope, as a way to place the grief of the parents in a much wider context. And I believe that the same thing is done with St. Methodius. He is being placed in a wider context. He personally embodies the Christian tradition and is bringing it into a new age. The biographer then proceeds to introduce the actual man. And here is how this is done. After all these men, the saints of the church throughout the ages, merciful God, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth, roused our teacher, the blessed Methodius, to a good deed in our age for the sake of our people, about whom none ever cared. And we are not ashamed to compare all his virtues and struggles by one with those of these pious men, for he was the equal of some, less so of others, but more still of others, surpassing the eloquence in virtue and the virtuous in eloquence. Being similar to all, he revealed in himself an image of all, fear of God, observance of commandments, purity of flesh, zealous prayers and piety, vehement and gentle speech, vehement for opponents, gentle for those accepting instruction, fury, mildness, mercy, love, passion, patience, being all things to all so that he might gain all. In terms of his life story up to the point of his brother's death, the Vita only shares details in brief mentions. His time as a monk on Mount Athos, his mission to the Khazars, and his mission to Moravia. During his time in Rome, a Slavic leader, Kossel, from the area known as Pannonia, calls for the Pope to send Methodius to him to be a missionary in his lands. In other literature on the matter, we learn that Methodius' primary plan was simply to return to his monastic life after the death of his, death of his brother in Rome. However, he submits himself to God's will. In the presentation on Cyril, I mentioned a detail that not many commentators have talked about. Leading up to their arrival in Rome, the political relationship between the Pope and the Patriarch was at its most turbulent that it had ever been, and it climaxed in the Photian Schism. Yet in the wake of this, or perhaps in the face of this, we see a very warm relationship between Cyril and Methodius and the Apostolic Father, the Pope. The significance of this, the political context this is happening within, is rarely observed, if ever, and it extends to both of the brothers' biographies. Here is the Pope's response to Kosal and his uh, request for Methodius as a missionary in his lands. 
Not to thee alone, but to all Slavic lands, I send him, Methodius, a teacher of God, a teacher from God, and the holy apostle Peter, the first successor and the keeper of the keys to the heavenly kingdom. End quote. He sends Methodius to Kosal in Pannonia, but also to King Rostislav and his son Sviatoslav in Great Moravia. He continues. You have asked for a teacher not only of this holy see, but also from the pious emperor Michael. And he sent you the blessed philosopher Constantine together with his brother, since we could not come. When they learned that your lands belonged to the apostolic see, they did not against canon, but came to us bearing the relics of St. Clement. Deriving threefold joy therefrom, we considered the matter and decided to send your lands our blessed son Methodius, an orthodox man accomplished in mind, whom we consecrated with his disciples in order to teach, as you requested, and fully explain to your language the scriptures and the holy mass that is the liturgy and baptism according to all the rules of the church, just as Constantine had begun through the grace of God and the prayers of St. Clement. Another thematic element continuing in Methodius' story is the preeminence of the sacraments. When Cyril and Methodius first arrived in Great Moravia, they began instructing people in the monastic cycle and the divine liturgy. The sacraments are the source of the prayer life. The sacerdotal nature in the ethics of evangelization is a forgotten notion today, yet not so by the saints. It makes perfect sense if you want to bring people closer to God, then teach them to pray well. The upcoming drama for Methodius in his new role is one that is difficult to understand. We are dealing with principalities that no longer exist, so for the casual reader such as myself, it is difficult to suss it out. Methodius is made bishop of Sirmium in Pannonia, yet also sent to Great Moravia. We have already named the three rulers. Kosal accepts Methodius, as his Vita says, with great honor. His seat in Pannonia was first held by St. Andronicus, a companion of St. Paul. However, these lands are related to each other if they're completely autonomous or whether one is a vassal of the other, it's unsure. There is then a face-to-face confrontation with the king of Moravia and the Frankish priests. Yet how this comes about exactly, the Vita doesn't tell us. And they said to him, You are teaching in our lands. Then he, Methodius, answered, If I had known they were yours, I would have stayed far away. But they are St. Peter's. Verily, if you out of jealousy and greed transgress canon from the old boundaries and prohibit God's teaching, beware, lest you spill your brains wishing to penetrate an iron mountain with a skull of bones. Which is totally an awesome thing to say. At any rate, it seems that at the outset of his new mission, the Germans arrest him, and he's placed in a prison in Swabia for two and a half years. It isn't until the Pope catches wind of their actions, and he's ordered to be released. The Moravians expel the German clergy from their land, for they, the Germans, forge discord against them, end quote. 
Finally, Methodius is now able to begin his mission. Here is what his life relates. And from that day forth, God's teaching and clergy grew greatly and multiplied in the cities. And for that reason, the Moravians began to grow and multiply, and the pagans to believe in the one God, casting aside their lies. And Moravia began to expand more and more into the lands to defeat its enemies successfully. To me, this would suggest that, with the German clergy present, none of this was happening prior. It is only until Methodius arrives that the people begin to understand who God is and begin to love him. Now, no good deed should go unpunished. Another wave of accusations rose up against Methodius, this time claiming that he was a heretic. Now, from the Vita itself, it is unclear what precisely the charges were. The new pope, John VIII, temporarily forbade the use of the Slavonic liturgy in Roman lands, a decision he would eventually reverse. And Methodius was accused of disobeying this, along with involvement with a heretical sect called, and I'm going to butcher this, Hyopaterism. Patericism. Hyopaterism. It was also rumored that Methodius was sought out by the Byzantine Emperor Basil II on an unknown uh, set of charges. However, after traveling to both Rome and Constantinople, Methodius secured support from both parties. Pope John VIII sent an epistle stating, Our blessed and orthodox brother Methodius is doing the work of the Apostolic See and in his hands from God and the Apostolic See are all the Slavic lands." Upon his return from Constantinople, he brought with him the emperor's envoy, while in Byzantium he was received warmly by Basil I. After all these toils to secure his position, on Palm Sunday he was quite ill and made a prophecy. My children, watch over me until the third day. He named a monk Gorazd as his successor, and then died three days later. As I mentioned earlier, typically we celebrate St. Methodius on April 6th, the day of his death, and it was moved this year because of Holy Week. Now, I think it's fitting that this Sunday is Palm Sunday, and that we're thinking about him now, the day that he would learn, that he would prophesy from God the date that he was actually going to die. That as our Lord was... Preparing to go to his passion, Methodius' story was ending. Furthermore, I have some pet topics that have only been reinforced in reading the stories of Cyril and Methodius this past little while. Since becoming a Greek Catholic, I have noticed that there is a tendency to caricaturize Eastern Christianity. The Eastern Church is described as being mystical rather than rational. We're free of Western scholasticism and classical philosophy, apparently. It has a very rigid, rigid flavor to it all. We are this and we are not that. However, in the lives of these two saints, we see that these, this isn't true. I may have shared this story before, but St. Cyril was known in life as Constantine the Philosopher. Prior to his missionary activity, he was sent as an envoy to, to conduct negotiations with Islamic peoples. And in, their, in his conversation with them, they were amazed with his vast knowledge and asked him how he could come to know so much. His reply was, we're the Greeks and we invented all the sciences. 
However, at the same time, it is true that our theological tradition has a heavier mystical element. As Evagrius said, he who prays is a theologian. However, that does not mean that those who thought about God were not praying. The criticism of Western theology from the East is that it's too rationalistic. Yet, when we read people like Justin Martyr, Athanasius, or John Damascene, we see people attempting theology through reasoning and answering their own objections. And to further this conversation beyond the scope of merely the lives of these two saints and the evidence that they present forward with their lives, I would suggest that even the dichotomy between East and West is one that has perhaps lived itself out. There is a great deal of diversity on either side to suggest that. I would compare Celtic Christianity and Anglo-Christianity to you know, Spanish Catholicism but yet both expressions are Western, though they look entirely different. There is a great gulf also between, perhaps, Kiev and Ethiopia, yet both sides are considered Eastern. In the end, truth is one. Just as when a shuttle leaves the Earth, the points of a compass become obsolete. However, don't get me wrong, I love our Ukrainian Greek Catholic traditions, and I prefer them to anything else. However, like that space shuttle, we should have an understanding of when and where the points of a compass have relevance and when they don't. When we do things like preach, preach against the rosary or exclude Augustine from our theological tradition, we are retroactively imposing a worldview our ancestors never had. The lives of Cyril and Methodius are evidence that suggests a less simplistic and more dynamic heritage. We lose our view of this heritage when we devolve into bilateral politics. We begin to worship our side or party rather than simply loving Christ. My suggestion is go ahead and read St. Therese and read St. Nicodemus of the Mountain. Pray the Rosary and Akathists. Venerate both his holy face and his sacred heart. This is the lived economy of salvation. Let's avoid these frivolities. I think that's a good place to end. Let's end with praying today's tropar. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Send your mercy from heaven, O Christ to those who keep the feast of your pastor's death. Through the intercession of your holy disciple, who is truly our father in the faith, open the gates of your kingdom and break the chains of our many sins. Thank you very much for listening. This has been your dose of Agios, St. Methodius, Apostle to the Slavs. Pray to God for us.